0: Hello and welcome back to the Institute of International Finances podcast series, All About the Green, where we speak with topic experts on the exciting and ever-changing world of sustainable finance. I'm your host, Tim Adams, president and CEO of the IIF. This podcast episode comes from the webinar series that we launched earlier this year entitled Common Sense Conversations on Climate Change, developed to explore and highlight a wide array of topics related to climate change, with a special focus on the effects on the financial services industry and the broader economy. These dialogues are critical given the unique capability of financial institutions and markets to effectively identify risks and fund solutions. Though the topics vary, each episode takes a deep dive into ways to encourage pragmatic, common-sense solutions to facilitate the transition to a low-carbon and ultimately a net-zero-carbon economy. I'm honored today to have really two interesting people to help us sort through the facts and look for pragmatic solutions. One is Dr. Monteza Faragian, who is at the Department of Transportation and runs the Build America Bureau with a long, distinguished career in the Department of Transportation in Virginia. And as a Virginia resident, I thank him for all that he's done. We have great highways and roads in transportation in northern Virginia. Also happy to welcome my good friend, Laura Dove, who's with Ford Motor Company, Director of Government Relations for Ford, and has had a long and distinguished career on Capitol Hill and knows Washington about as well as anyone could possibly want to know it. So we got a good sense of the politics and the policy as well as someone who's been on the front lines of transportation policy for some time. And the title today is Investing in Sustainable Transportation for the 21st Century. Montesa, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Build America Bureau does, help us understand what you're
1: doing? Tim, thank you for having me and thanks for that question. Well, America Bureau was created about five years ago as a one-stop shop within the Department of Transportation that brings a couple of loan programs that the Department of Transportation has under one roof, as well as expertise from different modes of transportation within DOT so that we can provide a better service to those who want to mainly finance their projects. The main credit programs we have, one of them is TIFIA. He has been around for over 20 years. It was housed in Federal Highway Administration before Bureau was created. The other program is RIF, which was housed in Federal Rail Administration, and now both of them are within Build America Bureau. We also have a program that's called Private Activity Bonds, which provides tax-exempt bonds to private companies who want to invest in transportation projects, as well as we have a unit that provides technical assistance to those who want to think outside the box. And instead of funding their projects, the way that we used to traditionally fund their transportation projects, they want to think about how they can finance their projects, how they can leverage their dollar values to advance transportation projects quicker, faster, more efficiently. Very good team that I have the privilege to work with, about 40 people in-house. We have lawyers, we have underwriters. We work like a minibank. We literally go through the whole process We have people who are on the project development outreach side that provide the necessary training, brainstorming sessions to those who want to think about how they can use some of the innovative financing and delivery models to advance their projects, as well as on the other side of the house, we have underwriters, lawyers who would go through the process of negotiating underwriting loans, closing those loans for us, and a portfolio management team that later helps us to manage those loans altogether we have about 100 billion dollar lending capacity between the two credit programs i can talk a little bit more later about what type of projects we can finance with those but pretty much all transportation projects that department of transportation is overseeing particularly between federal highway administration federal rail administration and federal transit administration all of those projects would be eligible to come and borrow from us not only dot's but also localities cities Authorities like transit authorities, private companies. So it's very, very flexible. And currently we have about $20 billion worth of loans in our books. And as I mentioned, about $100 billion available that if someone is interested to go through the process and get a loan from us, they can go through the process. These loans are low interest rate. They can be as short as two, three, four, five years, or as long as almost 40 years. I think that the longest loan we have is about 39, 40 years because we can go 35 years post substantial completion. the rates are basically set at treasury rates. So today if someone wants to get a loan that's 35 years or 40 years, the rate is fixed at 2.3 percent. We do have some programs that we can even cut that interest rates to half. So, so the rate would become then 1.2 or 1.3 percent and very flexible terms that we can actually negotiate that even some borrowers they would not need to make any payments up until five years after substantial completion of their project, so they will have plenty of time to go through the ramp-up phase, make the project profitable, generate revenue, and then start paying back those loans.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Laura, you have just been with Ford maybe a year and a half now. I think you joined in 2020, again, long career on Capitol Hill. Tell me about Ford. What's your focus in terms of environmentally friendly vehicles? Not only Ford, but all major auto companies seem like they have decided to go through a real transformation. Maybe the biggest transformation ever in the U.S. auto industry. Tell me about your position, how you're approaching it, and what are your priorities?
2: Yes, Tim, so I've been at Ford for about a year now. And I would say this is the most exciting time to be at a legacy automaker who's interested in affecting real change on climate. It's going to be a fascinating year, and we're going to get a lot done Ford has been leading on climate issues for years. Our chairman, Bill Ford, announced a vision for the company years ago that we would be carbon neutral by 2050, that we would stand with California on greenhouse gas emissions, that we would endorse the Paris Climate Accord. We were climate crusaders when climate crusaders weren't as cool as they are today. And what that meant is that our cycle plans and our business have been figuring out how to do that for several years now. And the key to that for us this year, I'm sure you've all seen in the news, we have an all-new electric F-150. We have an all-new electric Mustang. We're electrifying our e-transit, which isn't as sexy and exciting, but it's a big deal. We're taking our iconic nameplates and electrifying them. Because when I started at Ford, people were throwing, in industry meetings, people were throwing around this term, compliance cars. I was like, what the the heck is, what's a compliance car? Like a car's a car. A compliance car is a car that a legacy automaker will make to comply with the California framework or what other federal regulations on, on climate, just to get sort of the bare minimum to get through the regulatory framework. Well, Ford doesn't make compliance cars. Ford makes now vehicles that consumers really, really want to buy, and it's very exciting to watch and very exciting to actually to be able to drive these cars. The experience is amazing. So we've been leading on climate issues for several years. And this is the year that, to use an auto term, the rubber's going to hit the road. We're going to start rolling these vehicles off the line. Consumers are going to start buying them. And our climate commitments are going to follow from a successful business strategy to get consumers vehicles that they actually really want to drive that are easy on the planet.
0: Great. We're going to come back and talk about the F-150 in a minute, the best-selling vehicle in, in U.S. history, I guess global history, and I'm eager to drive it. Montez, I'm going to come back to you. I'd like to just delve a bit more deeply into the kind of projects. So you're supporting all kinds of transportation. Would it be rapid transit, surface transportation, highways? Maybe tell me some examples or some specifics about the kind of projects. And how does that fit into a climate-friendly approach under the Biden administration?
1: Sure. Yes. Uh, we can finance a wide range of different types of transportation projects. Highways, we have done multiple of those projects. We also have express lanes that you might be a little bit more familiar with them. These are toll roads that amic uh, tolling. We have express lanes that they have uh, transit embedded in them. Transform 66 express lanes project in Northern Virginia that, that is currently under construction. You might be familiar with that one. That's a good intermodal example that has highway, but at the same time, it has transit in it. We have financed rail projects. We have multiple loans to Amtrak or rail companies similar to Amtrak. It could be even class two and class three rail companies, freight rail. We can finance projects similar to Sound Transit in Seattle. They're actually one of the largest borrowers from us. One of the best examples for a transit project, MBTA, another borrower that they have financed a couple of their projects. Darts, another good example. So plenty of transit projects, rail projects that we have financed, as well as Some of the more recent projects that we have financed bus maintenance facilities in California, these are small counties that Monterey Salinas, for example, we just closed a loan for them late last year. They are trying to consolidate some of their maintenance bus facilities into one facility, add capabilities to make sure that they can maintain electric buses. And and those are the type of projects that we can can help counties or, or, or transit authorities to finance instead of renting. When it comes to clean energy, EV charging stations, for sure. We still have a couple of hurdles when it comes to legislation on what type. Of, based on the location, some of them may be eligible, some of them may not be eligible, but we're trying to work through that hurdle and, and, and make as many of them eligible as possible. As well as when it comes to resiliency projects, those are the type of projects that we can assist as well. Uh, there was a project in North Dakota that we gave them private activity bonds. It was a flood diversion version project that was assisting transportation assets, as well as some of the other assets. When it comes to electrification of buses, we can finance electrification of transit buses as well. That's another area that is eligible and and you're already in discussion with multiple potential borrowers who who are going through the process with us. We can also finance certain activities within ports, within airport terminals. As well as training stations, we have had a couple of uh, training stations that uh, that we have helped to finance. Monaghan Station in New York—that's one of our projects.
0: I'm so happy that New York has a new train station. I used to take the Excel frequently, so any progress you can make there is certainly welcome. I am going to go back to charging stations. So one of the pushbacks you hear, and certainly in the media, is why do we need to spend federal money on charging stations? You know. Back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, private sector built gas stations. It didn't require federal subsidy to build gas stations. The private sector took care of it. Why do we need a public sector solution for charging stations?
1: When it comes to infrastructure, we do need to assist private sector a little bit. Uh, the good thing with our loans is that they will be paid back or repaid dollars that are not federal dollars. So over time, this loan is going to be paid back by non-federal money. That's really one of the strengths of loan programs compared to grant programs. I can tell you that our default rate is less than 1%, so that means that 99% of our loans have been paid back over time. This is just a way to assist uh, both public agencies, localities, and private companies, because we're not only lending to private companies, we can lend to, to our public partners as well to leverage their dollars and really go ahead build projects that are good projects, projects that would generate a lot of benefits today, create economy of a scale by bundling them in many cases, reduce the price, be able to create a network that otherwise would be really hard to create if you want to go and build them one by one when money becomes available. And then also save on construction cost escalation. One of the biggest advantages of borrowing these days is that if you can borrow at the rates that are close to 1% or 2%, and go ahead and build your good projects today. I, I would emphasize that on good project again, because we're not definitely promoting bad projects to move forward and be built. But if you have a good project that you can build it today, compared to waiting 10 years and paying construction cost escalations around 5%. So if you wait 10 years, you may end up paying more than 50% higher on that project. Compared to financing it today, paying only 2% a year, their financing costs over 10 years could be less than 20% or 25%. That's the real benefit that, in my mind, works like a catalyst. It's not necessarily giving grants to those projects, money that will be out of the door. It's not going to get paid back. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing for many reasons that can be also a good policy in many good areas. But with our loan program, these loans are going to be eventually paid back. And our track record shows that actually, as I mentioned earlier, 99% of them get paid back on time, principal plus interest.
0: Wonderful. Sounds like an opportunity. Uh, given such a low interest rate environment, would be a great return. Laura, let's talk a little bit more about the 150, which has been the top-selling truck for 44 consecutive years. I've never owned a 150, although I've owned many Ford products. And you know, commercials are rugged guys doing rugged things and getting dirty and hauling stuff. And that's not what you think about when you think about an electric vehicle. That's tended to be a sort of small, compact, go-kart-like. Although some of your competitors are certainly changed in nature, but this is a real shift in perception for consumers about what's possible in the electric vehicle space. Maybe talk a little bit more about the iconic F-150 or the F-Series and why that was so important in terms of transforming the consumer experience.
2: Oh, it's been wonderful watching this development process. I call um, our engineers in Dearborn who dreamed up this truck. I call it like Santa's workshop because they were tasked with take the F-150 and reimagine how you could make it a battery electric vehicle and make it better, make it better than the ICE version. So the pieces that are different about the F-150 are unique to that BEV capability. For example, it's got this front trunk. And in the front trunk, you've got 14 different power outlets. So you said the rugged guy, the rugged guy, the rugged gal, whoever's got tools or whatever they're doing out in the field, you don't have to put a generator in the back of your truck anymore. If you're going out and, and doing, you know, running a construction site, your truck is your generator or it is your mobile office. You know, if you're an architect or whatever, you can plug in everything, or you can obviously tailgate because that battery power is so immense it can power your house for 3 days like in the summertime with your air conditioning running it can power your house for up to 3 days and if it's in the springtime and you don't have the AC running it could be up to 10 days just getting your fridge so it's a real asset for grid resiliency in the long term too so they took this truck and they said our customers love that it's built for it tough that it's a real workhorse of a truck what are the things that they're missing? What are they putting in the back of that truck that we could replace with functionality? And so they're using that battery to make it better and more functional for our commercial customers. And the response has been incredible. I, I saw something publicly available information that something like 100,000 pre orders of the F 150 that have so far. It's been an amazing response.
0: And you're not just satisfied with the passenger vehicle. You're also focused on commercial operations. Your Ford E-Transit van is also an important part of the overall equation.
2: And that's really honestly where we're going to bend the curve on climate is electrifying the large and small fleets. It's not one Tesla at a time in your driveway. It's making sure that the Comcast trucks are electrified your small plumbing operation that has four F-150s, they understand the utility of having a BEV and they can charge it. And I would add a point on government infrastructure. It's really a two-sided coin here. The government regulatory framework is forcing automakers to go all electric. And that's great. We're rising to that challenge. We're excited about it. But we cannot build an infrastructure around it. So there has to be charging, there has to be robust charging available in order for these customers to buy these vehicles and the numbers that are going to be required to meet our climate goals. So we definitely need a government role in the near term to get that infrastructure up and running.
0: Laura, let me take this one step further. You're a savvy surveyor of uh, U.S. politics. You've been in the center of it for a long time. Not everyone in this town is as crazy about electric vehicles as you are, as I am. Not everyone is sensitive to the need to respond to, to climate change. How are you selling the politics that we need to do this, it is the direction of travel, and we also need federal resources in order to make it all come together?
2: Well, it's sort of the perfect storm this year because Washington is very eager to spend money on infrastructure. You know, Every five or six years, they come together on a large-scale infrastructure program that funds the next five or six years of roadmap for infrastructure. And I believe that every person understands that electrification has to be part of that conversation. We're not going to be able to set it and forget it for five or six years without addressing charging infrastructure, because in five or six years, these cars and these trucks and these You know, transit vans are going to be on the road. They're going to have to be electrified. It is a really good opportunity for a bipartisan conversation about what does the future of transportation look like. We're talking about a five, six, seven, eight year lead time. Electric charging infrastructure has got to be part of that conversation. I don't think there's anybody in Washington on the right or the left who doesn't acknowledge that we need to do that as part of this roadmap.
0: Just looking at a KPMG study that said posits $200 billion the automakers are spending on electric vehicles, that's more in adjusted dollars than we spent on the NASA program to put a man on the moon. But the idea to get to 30% of market share from, what are we now, 4% or 5% in just a decade, that's a huge ramp up. So to your point, you need all the component pieces. You need the charging stations, you need a grid that can support the demand for electrical flows. Montesano, tell us more about your support for the grid. Is that part of your transportation budget? Are you supportive of not only the charging stations, but the infrastructure that goes behind it?
1: We definitely are in support of that. I'm glad that actually President Biden is priority on infrastructure, particularly green infrastructure, talking about electric charging stations, talking about the future of infrastructure, not only the electric charging stations, but also the roads, smart roads, because we're also facing autonomous vehicles that are coming to the roads. And we definitely need to build the infrastructure that is capable of supporting future needs, future technologies. We do have the capacity, as I mentioned earlier, that $100 billion capacity can be used for initiatives like the one that you're just talking about. Electrification of buses is, is one of the areas that we do see a lot of potential in it. As Laura said, when we start changing vehicles one by one, it's it's sometimes difficult. It takes a lot of time to get there. Plus, it's expensive. When you start looking at small quantities, the cost goes up. The effort might be the same, but the cost goes up. By bundling them, by trying to create economy of a scale, by trying to finance projects. We may not have all the resources to pay for them upfront, but we can pay for them over time. When you look at the cost of doing nothing, the cost of not moving forward, doing things old-fashioned, and compare that to the benefits of borrowing and investing in some of these assets that are going to generate massive benefits. I think the business case is already made there, that that's something that we should support, we should focus on it, and we should all try to help to advance. There are multiple resources available. It's not just Department of Transportation and Build America Bureau. They're actually talking to our friends within the Department of Energy. They have a loan office there as well that they're able to lend to certain types of projects. And many of these projects, many of these areas, actually, we do have an overlap. Because when we talk about infrastructure, sometimes... Infrastructure is not just supporting roads or transportation. It could be supporting other areas as well. Now we see more and more overlap between different types of infrastructure. For example, we talk about broadband. There is a need for broadband in transportation, there is a need for broadband in other areas as well. We talk about offshore wind farms. Just to install the equipment that needs to be installed offshore, you need Different types of infrastructure to be in place, including ports. You need to make improvements in your ports in order to be able to take advantage of offshore wind farms. And that speaks to the need that more and more agencies need to come together, try to identify resources that they have available, and try to work with each other as partners in order to advance some of these challenging projects. Come
0: back to you a little bit more about the politics and, and policy. What's your wish list when you see members of Congress and there's a bit of a wow factor and they say to you, this is great, what can we do to help? What's the answer in addition to obviously building out the infrastructure, which as you know, has a lead time of five to 10 or 15 years. we really need to start building the infrastructure now, which is why Mortez is so important to this discussion. Are there regulatory issues? Are there subsidy issues? Are there things that you want them to get out of the way that they're unfortunately distorting the market in a way which is unhelpful?
2: So a couple things. We've had some real bipartisan progress on the charging infrastructure front. Senator Carper and Senator Burr have a bipartisan bill to extend 30C in the tax code. And that's a tax credit for larger scale projects to really unleash the private sector to figure this out and what that looks like. So we've had a really good response on a bipartisan level on what that infrastructure piece looks like. The other thing that we've had a hard time getting um, regulators to focus on is, as you mentioned, autonomous vehicles. The regulatory framework for autonomous vehicles has been nascent and in its infancy for years now. And we really need some certainty that if we're going to start deploying AVs at scale, we need some regulatory certainty. And we're hoping that this infrastructure package that would pass this year will set the stage for that. But we also need um, we need the Department of Transportation and NHTSA to go ahead and move forward with some of this AV regulatory framework so the private sector can actually deploy.
0: And is there an issue between state and federal authorities? Obviously, California has been a leader for years in terms of percentage of vehicles sold have to meet certain standards. They really have been the tail wagging the dog. What about federal preemption and how do you work with states that are oftentimes a a bit ahead of, of where Washington might be?
2: So Ford sided with California several years ago and worked out this California framework. So we were the first legacy automaker the first full line automaker to stand with California and actually got in a bit of a fight with the Trump administration over this. So we are on board with that framework and we are encouraging the federal government to implement the California framework because it's an equitable solution.
0: And this seems like an administration that's much more likely to do that than the prior administration. So there does seem to be some consistency between Washington and some of the states. Yeah, we have fewer headwinds now. Yes. Morteza, same question. There's some skepticism in Washington about climate generally, the the need to decarbonize, the move to a greener environment, some challenges to what it is we're all attempting to do. How do you address the skepticism? Obviously, you do congressional hearings, you're meeting with members of Congress, there are others in the ecosystem here in Washington. How do you take on the skeptics and what's your line of
1: argument? Uh, Tim, change is always uh, something that people, especially in government, are afraid of. (laughs) When you have done things the same way again and again and again, you would like to do it exactly that way because you have tested it, you know it works, and it's less risky. That's not something new. It's not just related to environmental stuff. Any issue that you want to think in a different way, you need to get people past no first because that's the first thing that you always hear. Nope, it can't be done. And then try to get them to yes. And that's a process that takes time. I have faced that in my roles, both in Virginia and the current role as uh, Executive Director of Build America Bureau in many, many different aspects. Climate is just one of them, as you mentioned, but just also trying to figure out how people can think outside the box and start thinking about financing That has been a big challenge for me as well. What I found is education can play a key role, trying to explain to people what they're missing, what is the opportunity that they have in front of them, and by not taking action, how they are harming themselves and those that they are representing. In many cases, that has worked for me. And I've traveled to different states, talked to different DOTs personally because I didn't want to just sit in D.C. in my office and wait for them to call me. I actually wanted to go and talk to them in their own office, and that that has worked. I can tell you that when I joined Build America Bureau, our pipeline was just $2 billion of loans that we were able to close each year. This year, just after two years, our pipeline is $20 billion, 10 times higher. So that approach of just trying to talk to people directly and try to explain to them how things can look like, if they are willing to think outside the box, think differently, that's very helpful. The other piece that I found is is a big obstacle is Having internal resources that can give you the right information and enable you to analyze the right information, particularly when it comes to making decisions, thinking about uh, which direction you want to go, what option do you want to select, both as what option do you want to select on the policy side, what option do you want to select on project delivery side or project funding or financing side, that resource, internal resource that would enable some of these folks to think differently is something that. In my mind, we need to invest. In. It's not all about that ultimate goal, the shiny goal that we want to achieve. It's oftentimes about what are different steps that we need to go through it to get there. And everything starts with planning. Everything starts with studying. Everything starts with taking your time, spending resources, evaluating different options that you have fairly equitably. And that's, that's the area that I, I want to emphasize. I think that the project planning, project development phase, making sure that folks understand that there are different ways that they can get things done. There are different ways that they can focus on that that might be different than how they used to build projects in the past. That's really important. And can give you one example, a project that I worked on it. I mentioned it earlier, Transform 66 Express Lane project. It's a highway project. It's a toll road. But when we went through the process and we tried to Build that project for future generation, not just build more names, but actually design something that would move more people, achieve the goal that we wanted to achieve, which was increasing safety, increasing connectivity, increasing travel time, reliability, providing different travel choices to people so they can actually choose. Do they want to drive, carpool, take a bus? When we started looking at that and we started focusing on the outcome we wanted to achieve, We turned that highway project, toll road project, into a truly multimodal project that is using toll revenue, user fees, not only to build the highway itself, but also to fund operation of buses, purchasing of transit buses, maintaining, preserving median for future metro extension, promoting ride share, building park and ride facilities so people can actually park there and carpool together, as well as a lot of other technologies that were built into that road. So that's one good example that if folks do have resources and actually assign resources to projects upfront and start thinking about what do they really want to achieve and how they can achieve it, take their time a little bit. I'm not talking about taking your time five, 10 years, but maybe a couple of months to just study different options, study environmental mitigation options, because there are always possibilities, there are always options that oftentimes folks don't look at it either because they're not aware of it or they're afraid of you know, doing things in a different way. But if we focus on that part, I think a lot of our projects are going to look different. A lot of our infrastructure projects are going to generate different types of results. Indeed.
0: The amount of money you're talking about is phenomenal. And there's billions that are being deployed. Laura Ford makes other vehicles well. When I was a kid, my next door neighbor had a Mustang, 1967 Mustang convertible. It was really fast. Leah, Coke, and the whole uh, idea behind the Mustang, what a transformative vehicle it was for Ford at the time. Fun car to drive. So it's, it's not just trucks. You've got other electric vehicles that you're selling as well. Tell us about that. When
2: I started at Ford, they had just announced the new Mustang mach EV. And my husband, who grew up in Detroit and is a Ford guy through and through, was just super dismissive of this concept of this car. He was like, that is not a Mustang. Very dismissive. So we got one and we've had one for about three months and he is a hundred percent sold. This car drives like a Mustang. It has torque. It has speed. It zooms. It's also pretty practical. Yeah. I can throw my dog and my kids in the back and it has a range up to 300 miles. So it's a family car, but it's also a performance car. And we're seeing a great response too from people. And these are not your normal Ford drivers. These are performance car, but also progressive on climate drivers who are buying these cars. So our iconic nameplates: the Mustang for sure, the F-150 for sure. And then on the commercial space, we've made millions and millions of these transit vans. It's time for us to figure out how to electrify those and get people who don't buy for the same kind of performance that my husband will buy a Mustang for, but for this working vehicle performance, What can we do to make that experience unique? So, when you get to a battery electric vehicle, you also get this connectivity suite of services that goes with it. So, if our commercial customers, if they have a fleet of transit vans, they know where they're going, when they're charging, what their issues are. You've got over the air updates for service. They're not out of service for three days getting something fixed in the engine because there's no engine. It's a totally different, more cost effective, more efficient way of maintaining your fleet, which is, these are rolling out next year, and that's going to be the next really exciting story for us, is our commercial customers and what they're going to do with these EVs.
0: Laurie, you make a good point, and Martezza mentioned earlier about the importance of Wi-Fi and the connect of the Internet of Things. You're creating an Internet of Things. Your vehicles need to communicate with each other, with operations, and you need to know where the next charging station is. So you've been putting members of Congress in these electric vehicles. What kind of response have you gotten and I assume that once they've driven around the track a few times, they're all bought in. They
2: love it. They're just really fun to drive. I saw a couple of members of Congress there for the weekend and my car was, was plugged in in front of the venue we were, and we were walking around and looking at it. I mean, it's it's definitely easier to talk about this stuff if you can sit in the vehicle and figure out how it works, figure out how easy it is to charge, try to drive it for a couple of hours and say, gosh, you know what? where is the next charging station? Oh, there are 15 of them and they're at Walmart. I'll stop at the next Walmart. I'll go shopping for 20 minutes and I'll charge up. It's different than driving an ICE vehicle, but in many ways it's easier.
0: And the the dealerships and your workers, everyone is bought into what a transformation this would mean for not only Ford, but the auto industry globally. Everyone understands the direction of travel. Everyone buys into it.
2: Yeah, I mean, because if we don't work together on this, we're gonna get left behind. The concept of competitiveness with China is sort of the topic du jour and I think in every sector right now. But truly, if we do not get this right, China is gonna eat our lunch on electrification because they already have, I think, over a hundred nameplates in China for electric vehicles, let alone you know what they're doing with autonomous electric vehicles. America can lead on the EV transformation. We can get the battery supply chain, right? We can build these vehicles in America. Americans can drive these and make them into you know, must-have vehicles. But we got to start now. We can't wait for this because China's going to do it for
0: us. That's a great note to end on. We do need to do it now. You're producing amazing vehicles. and I can't wait to drive them. You promised to let me uh, drive them. So I'm going to take you up on that. But we also need what Mortez is doing as well, which we need the infrastructure. The two have to go together. And what needs to happen now, we need to ramp up as quickly as possible if we want to hit the targets that you as an industry want to hit. But we as a society need to hit in order to limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions and reduce them over time. Morteza, thank you so much. And Laura, it's great seeing you. Uh, Congratulations at Ford. Let me know when I can uh, come to Dearborn and uh, put on a helmet and and see how fast I can get your cars going. Thanks again for listening to IF's All About the Green podcast. This has been a great conversation. We thank our guests for another engaging dialogue on the implications of climate change in the financial services industry and the broader economy. For more episodes of All About the Green, please visit us at IIF.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.